First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. As President Biden visits Ukraine, a global expert on Russia shares her expertise. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio Two. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a conversation with Russia expert Fiona Hill about the war in Ukraine as she speaks in town this evening. You can connect with Fiona Hill right now. Get on the line. It's 549-2937. Then later, he's a local substitute teacher who was fired for posting a viral video of empty library shelves at his Mandarin school. Today, Brian Covey tells his story. That and more ahead, but... First this hour, she's one of the world's leading experts on Russia. Fiona Hill has studied Vladimir Putin for decades. She's worked in both Republican and Democratic administrations, and she has a reputation for truth-telling. It was earned when she notably testified during impeachment hearings for her former boss, President Donald Trump. Hill is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. And just as President Joe Biden visits Ukraine this week, one year into their battle against Russia, Fiona Hill speaks tonight in town on behalf of the World Affairs Council of Jacksonville as she headlines their Global Issues Evening. We're so pleased to welcome Fiona Hill to the show. She is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And here in studio, John Alaska of the World Affairs Council. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. And what are your questions for Fiona Hill about Russia's war against Ukraine? Give us a call now. It's 549-2937. That's 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax. Facebook open as always. So first off, if I could ask you, Fiona, what are your thoughts about President Biden's visit to Kiev, a war zone, and his meeting with that country's President Volodymyr Zelensky? Well, look, first of all, it was historic. Um, I mean, it's very rare for a president uh, to make um, a visit to an active war zone in this manner. Um, It wasn't to an airbase or anywhere that uh, we control militarily. He went right into the heart of Kiev. And obviously, it was an incredible... uh, signaling on behalf not just of the United States, but of all of the U.S. and its allies um, of the importance of standing by Ukraine in its effort uh, to liberate itself from this Russian invasion. Other leaders have visited, um, other um, U.S. officials um, have visited, but obviously it takes um, a lot of effort uh, to get uh, a U.S. president uh, to uh, a place like Kiev at this kind of uh, at this kind of juncture, I'm a huge amount of planning. And what was also remarkable was it was carried off without any kind of hints that that's what he was going to do. I mean, obviously, he was on his way to Warsaw, uh, where he's giving um, a major speech about uh, Europe and the United States' uh, role uh, still in international security and international affairs. But uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. Right. Quite cloak and dagger, the accounts of him being flown and then taken on a train. And certainly, as you say, it demonstrates... American commitment to Ukraine. But uh, do you believe that the U.S. and the NATO alliance are committed enough to Ukraine in its battle against the Russian invasion? Could they be doing more? Well, look, I think what we have to be signaling, and it just can't be just the United States and NATO, but other allies that are not part of NATO. I mean, we have Japan and South Korea and uh, New Zealand and Australia and you know other uh, members of the so-called Western Alliance who are also opposing what Russia has done in Ukraine. We need to get other countries um, to recognize that what Russia has done is, as President Biden and everybody else have been pointing out, a huge violation of the UN Charter and international law. I mean, basically, Putin has uh, invaded a sovereign state in the same way that Hitler invaded Poland and everywhere else uh, in Europe in 1939, or the Germans um, invading France and uh, Belgium in uh, 1914. I mean, this is, you know, basically a major violation of every norm that we've been upholding. And that's what we need to do more. We need to really, in addition to supporting Ukraine on the battlefield, which is the main thrust of all of the discussions at the moment, 
is really keep it up on the diplomacy. Um, you know, we've heard that the Chinese um, leader is supposed to be giving some speech in the next couple of days on a peace plan uh, for Ukraine. But whatever happens has to recognize Ukraine has the right to its independence in sovereignty and territorial integrity. Can you frame that struggle for our listeners and explain, uh, you know, at the macro level, why the Biden administration and other nations see Ukraine's stand against Russia as symbolic of a larger global contest that we're seeing play out all over the world right now between dictatorships and democracies, between authoritarian regimes and open societies committed to the rule of law? Yeah, look, that's been the message that we've been trying to get across. But I'll be frank that actually that doesn't resonate in other parts of the world. If you go to the Middle East or you go to Asia and Latin and South America, people have actually bought into the idea that Putin has been peddling, which he did again today in a speech that he made, that this is, you know, basically the continuation of Russia's struggle with the United States during the Cold War. So they don't see this autocracy versus democracy they don't see the values that are risk here that we clearly and the rest of our allies do. But they do um, recognize that what Russia has done is illegal in terms of the UN Charter. And there are so many other countries that have threats from their neighbors uh, over territory, uh, countries that were parts formerly of an empire or that they have broken away from another state and that there's um, major territorial disputes here. I mean, we could go around the globe enumerating those. There's a lot of concern from China's neighbors, including India. Uh, which has contested territory in the Himalayas. And we have to frame it in that uh, uh, framework rather than just, you know, how we've been presenting it to ourselves. That's the kind of the point that I'm uh, trying to make here is that, yes, for us, this really is a struggle. Um, It's a great power competition with uh, democracies on the one side and autocracies, authoritarian states on the other. But fundamentally for the rest of the world, this is a really a violation of territorial sovereignty and something that could imperil them as well. And that's the challenge uh, for the administration is getting that across. Because the rest of the world buys into, well, if the United States can do invade Iraq, for example, why can Russia not do this? And we have to mm. you know, basically be pushing back against that point. You're a noted expert on Vladimir Putin, what makes him tick, his motivations. The war is going badly for him. What are his options now? You know, the sad thing from our perspective is that he doesn't see that it's going badly for him. I mean, we would uh, lay out every indicator of this 200,000 people either dead or severely injured from the Russian military, uh, the rupture of all of these relationships with Europe and many other countries as well. Um, But as far as Putin is concerned, Russia is not a pariah state. You know, just as we're speaking, uh, Russia, China and South Africa have been uh, organizing naval exercises together. 87 countries give Russian citizens, uh, visa-free entry, places like Mexico, you know, Venezuela, Argentina, you know, for example, Turkey. Uh, There are many countries that are trading actively with Russia. In fact, their trade has increased since the war, including China and also Turkey and many countries in the Middle East. Only 34 countries have uh, imposed sanctions. The United States is trying to put more on now. That's been another uh, set of announcements from uh, the White House today. But from Putin's perspective, He's still got a lot more manpower. And this is a really tragic element of this for everyone listening. Um, you know, the, the human devastation in this war is is extreme. And the Russians have actually lost more uh, people in this war in Ukraine than they did in Afghanistan in a tenth of the time. I mean, in excess. It was 14,000 people or so died in Afghanistan when the Soviet Union invaded, and that was 270 million people. This is 140 million people in Russia, and they're losing, you know, like 200,000 casualties. I mean, people can, you know, do the math here in a fraction of the time. Mm. And that's uh, the area where you've got to ask yourself, is that going to be able to continue? Putin's been doing a stealth mobilization. We've had like 300,000 new people put into the field. He's talking about 500,000 more. You know, his estimation right now is that he's just going to throw all of the manpower he can at this and just try to overwhelm the Ukrainians with numbers, you know, which is why we're talking so much about um, equipment and he's trying to push back against this. But right now, as we speak, Putin doesn't think he's lost. And so all of these factors uh, in terms of manpower, um, the course of events on the battlefield, the economy and how the Russian economy looks over time, these are things that he's uh, not dealing with right now. He just still thinks that he can prevail. Mm. Our guest this morning is Russia expert Fiona Hill. She speaks tonight in Jacksonville on behalf of the World Affairs Council, their Global Issues Evening. 
What are your questions for her? 549-2937. Give us a call. Chad in St. Nicholas. Hi, Chad. Good morning. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Ms. Hill, uh, just this morning, the headline says that Mr. Putin is uh, saying he's not going to participate in the START nuclear treaty anymore. Is that just saber rattling? I mean, it looks like he's unseating the, the whole saber, but is that a sign that he is getting a little worried, maybe? Yeah, that, thank you for that. That was actually my next question, Fiona. Will Vladimir Putin yeah. resort to nuclear weapons? Yeah, and it's a great question from Chad because, you know, um, you know, a lot of people are scratching their heads um, on the, the new START treaty because Russia really wanted to have this extended. And you might recall that the Biden administration was quick to do that and actually got a bit of criticism, you know, at the very beginning of the presidency about, um, you know, extending it so quickly because that was definitely one of the Russian goals. So one has to ask, as Chad just did, why are they, you know, doing this now? And it seems like an own goal in many respects because um, Putin does like to saber rattle um, in the war in Ukraine. We've seen it many times. People around him threatening nuclear Armageddon, you know, for example, uh, talking about uh, using a tactical battlefield nuclear weapon and started for the strategic long-range nuclear weapons, which, of course, is you know the, the weapons that would be used in a war directly with the United States. And he got pushed back by China. India and other countries um, several months ago when it looked like, you know, he was actually contemplating something. Basically, they made it clear that they thought it would be irresponsible um, for uh, Russia to even talk about this. And so I think the rest of the world will be watching uh, Russia pull out of this and also wondering what's going on, because this is kind of the anchor, you know, for global uh, security and uh, nuclear security. And Russia and the United States are no longer the only global uh, nuclear powers. Are there other countries like China that are developing uh, strategic weapons and intermediate and also tactical? I mean, we've got Kim Jong-un in North Korea throwing missiles off all over the place and, you know, threatening nuclear attacks. So this um, obviously makes uh, a lot uh, more emphasis on uh, the uh, nuclear issues. And I think that's actually the purpose, just as you, Willison uh, and Chad, have also ascertained here, that Putin wants to get the threat of a nuclear conflict back in uh, on the agenda again. Because once it um, you know, basically fades off into grey or into the background, then um, you know, people back off also on uh, pushing uh, forward on getting Ukraine to negotiate with Russia. And I think this is a time now where he wants to up the ante and he wants uh, people to recognise that the risk of a nuclear war is high again and that if people don't want to uh, you know, basically contemplate any kind of use of nuclear weapons, this is the time to push Ukraine towards the negotiating table to get it to capitulate and surrender its it's pure uh, nuclear blackmail as far as that I can see. And he's just trying to mm. you know, turn up the volume or turn up the heat a little bit on this issue. It's 5492937. A comment on Facebook for you from Joss. He says, in March of last year, your guest and others concluded there was a tentative peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. The deal was torpedoed by former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Isn't that a stain on the West? Why would such a deal be scuttled, he asks. Yeah, you know, uh, Josh, I'm glad he raised this because um, this has been going on for quite some time, all of the, the talk about uh, this uh, so-called peace deal from um, March and April. And you know, what we've seen, unfortunately, is a lot of disinformation on the Internet about what was going on there. Um, in fact, um, there were indeed uh, what we call track two um, negotiations, where it's not the, you know, the principles at the top uh, going on for some time um, of people trying to kind of figure out a way of... Uh, before the war, heading it off, and then afterwards, you know, trying to get a settlement. And in that period that Josh is referring to, some envoys uh, were sent by uh, the Russian government, including Ruslan Abramovich, who was one of the, the Russian oligarchs, the, the guy who used to own Chelsea uh, uh, soccer team. And they were in Istanbul and uh, were meeting with Ukrainian counterparts. And it, what is very clear, and you know, I'll just say I've taken part in many negotiations uh, with Russia over the years, and this is the same in every case was that the envoys, including Abramovich and people that he'd brought along, were given a very um, uh, constrained room for manoeuvre and in terms of room for negotiation uh, by the Kremlin and by Putin. So things that they were basically working out with their Ukrainian counterparts you know, were not necessarily things that could be taken forward, but there were supposed to be frameworks uh, for 
um, you know, kind of a, a way to move forward and try to find eventually a negotiation. And again, I mean, I've taken part in, in many of these, including the negotiations on the war in Chechnya in the 1990s in terms of, you know, direct participation there. And what happened was, um, not as it's been depicted on social media and often a number of articles, it was somehow pulled off by Western visits to Kiev, but that the framework that Abramovich and the other people who had been involved in this worked out wasn't accepted back home in the Kremlin. And in the meantime, uh, the uh, Russian forces pulled out of uh, Buchar Nirpin, and I'm sure everybody remembers the name of those two um, small towns outside of Kiev, <laughs> and we discovered all of the atrocities, the raping and pillaging of the towns, and then mm. that, of course, hardened the attitudes of the Ukrainians, and they didn't want to continue on the basis of their discussions. But there were some contours of um, a possible way forward, including on Crimea, in those early negotiations. It's just that there was no sign at that time that they really had traction. It was more of a framework that was being worked out. So it wasn't a peace deal. But, um, you know, Josh's larger thrust on the issue of negotiations is still valid. We need to find some kind of negotiation out of this. It can't be just all on the battlefield. Diane in Panavidra. Hello, Diane. You're on the air. Hello. Hi, Diane. Hi. Um, my question is this, uh, given the fact that um, only 34 nations have abided by the sanctions that have been imposed upon Russia and the fact that as a result, the oil prices and gas have gone and skyrocketed, the, the Russians are getting rich in the process of trying to sanction them. So my question is, what else can we do and the rest of the nations of the world do to keep the Russians from continuing to bomb Kiev and, and Ukraine, short of having to put troops on the ground, short of, I mean, obviously we're giving them weapons, we're giving them maybe eventually airplanes and tanks. What else can we do since sanctions don't seem to work? And it just is making Putin rich, enables him to hire mercenaries to fight the war for them, what can we do? Yeah, what can we do? Fiona Hill. Yeah, I think Diane's question, and she laid it out, you know, perfectly in terms of, you know, the full extent of this. I mean, obviously, on the oil and gas front, um, you know, Russia continues to be able to, you know, sell both. There has actually been some major shifts on uh, Russia's gas sales, however, which, you know, could be some better news over the longer term. Germany and, you know, the other European countries that were, you know, highly dependent on Russian gas and, in fact, were planning on increasing imports of Russian gas have, you know, gone as close to cold turkey as you could, you know, possibly imagine on this. I mean, really with incredible rapid speed, which of course makes you wonder <laughs> why they didn't do this earlier, of course, you know, because the US has been badgering them for some time about um, moving away from that uh, dependency. It's difficult for Russia to sell its gas somewhere else. Uh, but oil, as Diane, you know, points out is um, a major issue. And although we've uh, put this oil cap um, on um, the price of oil that can be shipped from Russia to other places, you know, other countries are cashing in on you know, discounted oil like India and China, et cetera. And so, you know, we've got to push back on those countries um, taking um, Russian oil. And again, there's more sanctions planned. But Dan's right. It's not just sanctions. It's really kind of the longer term you know, impact on, on Russia from all of these changes in its trading patterns as well. I mean, we really have to work very hard with other countries like South Africa, Brazil, India, and many others um, on um, their trade with Russia, Turkey, um, you know, which is ostensibly and supposedly um, uh, a NATO ally, uh, has not uh, bought into the sanctions regime either. So obviously, the horrible tragedy of the Turkish earthquake may change some things. I mean, the news that you just had on this morning about more than 40,000 people coming up to 50,000 people killed there is just horrific. And, you know, European and other um, Turkish NATO allies have been stepping up to help Turkey. And Russia, you know, obviously isn't a country renowned for its humanitarian assistance. So, you know, that might shift things somewhat. But the international diplomacy is going to be pretty critical. The other thing is trying to make sure that uh, Russia itself can't get access to weapons. You know, we've heard a lot uh, this morning about the risks that China uh, may sell lethal weaponry to Russia. There's North Korea and uh, in, and um, Iran that are selling um, or providing weapons to Russia. We've got to try to cut all of that off. But uh, the diplomacy and working with other countries to 
to make okay. it very clear to Russia that it's, it is uh, growing increasingly isolated unless it does something to end this war. John in Pontevedra. Hello, John. Your thoughts? Hey. Yes. Uh, Miss Hill, first, thank you for your service. Um, second, I have a quick question. Um, could we see some sort of a brokered peace deal? I mean, history tends to repeat itself, similar to what we've seen or what we've already done in South Korea, where the Donbass region is considered a DMZ, um, and we admit the Ukraine into NATO for their protection. Um, I just wanted to kind of understand your thoughts on that. Thanks for that. Yes, thanks, John. I mean, these are some of the ideas that are being floated around. Um, You know, the whole idea of uh, exactly as you suggest, uh, some, you know, kind of demilitarized zone and some territorial administration for, you know, the contested areas. It's um, an idea that's been put off by by a number of um, international legal experts and uh, some academics. There's a a gentleman named uh, Dirk Moses, who's at... um, NYU um, and others who've been writing about this, because, you know, as, we, as you're suggesting here, there are many different formulas that we've found in the past for how to deal with contested uh, territory. Now, of course, it's contested on the one side by Russia. And the big problem is uh, going to be Crimea and Donbass, um, which, um, you know, really uh, have been problems right from the very beginning of over the last uh, 10 you know, plus years. But we're going to have to also find some formula for the other two areas that Putin declared were annexed in September, which is Zaporizhia and Kherson, which are territories that uh, you know were not previously contested by Russia at all. And you know there has to be some push there to uh, have uh, Russia hand those over. Um, and you know again, all of this has to be the subject of negotiation. But as John's suggesting there, there are all kinds of different formulas if we get to that point. If we and get to that the other point. You know, point of that is just, you know, not to recognize whatever, you know, Russia's taken over the longer term. So we're getting just uh, a warm up for uh, what's sure to be an incredible global issues evening tonight in Jacksonville on behalf of the World Affairs Council. Their guest, Fiona Hill. It's been so insightful to hear her comments on the radio just now for our listeners. John Alaska, World Affairs Council. This talk is so popular, I believe people are on a wait list for tickets. Is that right? Yes, we had to institute that late last week um, just because, uh, you know, we always try to book really current speakers for current things happening in our society. But who would have thought it would be so current still um, a year later? But uh, yes, you can visit our website at worldaffairscouncilljacks.org and there's information on how to get on the wait list. We are working right now to see who is sort of canceling their tickets and who we can allow on. So it'll be an all-day endeavor. But uh, while you're on our website, you can look at future events we have coming up, including Graham Wood on March 21st. He's going to be talking about Saudi Arabia and all of our different membership levels, which go to fund not only our speakers, but our educational efforts in over 20 schools across Northeast Florida. Check that out at worldaffairscouncilljacks.org. And Fiona Hill, I should tell you that I hope some members of my book club are listening right now because last weekend they read your book. Oh, great. Yes. uh, You're also an author. So uh, I want to thank you both. uh, Fiona Hill, tonight's guest uh, at the Global Issues Evening, and John Alaska of the World Affairs Council of Jacksonville. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa. Up next, keep listening as we speak with the local substitute teacher who was fired after he posted a viral video of empty school library bookshelves. That's coming up. We'll be right back.
Well, a Jacksonville substitute teacher was fired last week after he posted a video of empty bookshelves at his school in Mandarin. Governor Ron DeSantis, when asked about it, called the video a fake narrative. Now, this video has been viewed nearly six million times. The clip went viral at a moment when teachers around Florida are removing or covering books in public schools to comply with new state laws. Brian Covey, a substitute teacher at Mandarin Middle School, posted this video to Twitter last month, and what it showed was rows of empty bookshelves at the school library. On Thursday, Covey said Duval County Public Schools told him he'd been fired. They said it was because he violated their cell phone and social media policy. Duval Schools then posted their own video in rebuttal to Covey, showing the empty bookshelves that he depicted, but also other shelves in other parts of the library that did contain books. However, Covey says very few books are, in fact, available to students. Brian Covey joins us now in studio with more about this, and it's good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. So what are your questions for Fire Duval substitute teacher Brian Covey? Did you see his viral video of empty library shelves at his school in Mandarin where he taught? Maybe you follow him on Twitter. He's at Jags fan Brian. He mainly tweets about the Jaguars. At any rate, give us a call. It's 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa and Jacks, getting lots of your tweets and comments on Facebook. And we'll go to those in a little bit. So, so what motivated you to post this video? So when I found out that they removed all of the books from my kids' classroom, mm-hmm. um, what we found out was my kids basically said, did you hear what happened to school today? And this is as we were walking into a Literacy Week event where they had food trucks, uh, a, a book fair going on, as well as um, uh, in, in the individual classrooms, we could tour them and they were doing a, an escape room event where there was different puzzles and stuff like that. So the first time I, I saw any books covered up was in, um, they had construction paper over the classroom libraries. So that night I had sent a tweet out that said, um, they removed all the books from my kids' classroom. I think I read, or I said I read books about this when I was in school because I'm from Duval County Schools. So um, that morning I was getting ready for my substitute job. And as I was getting ready, um, I was sitting out in, in, in the parking lot looking at Twitter like I do, just killing time. Mm. Um, and I saw some people that were not in from Duval saying, you know, things that didn't happen for $500 and things like that. Uh, and it kind of dawned on me that this is something that seems so surreal that outside of living through it, um, people don't believe it's a reality. So as I went inside, I was checking in for my job and uh, I was talking to um, the principal's admin and she's like, well, did I was complaining about it and how people outside doesn't don't believe that it's real. And she says, well, go, you should go check out uh, what we did to our library. So at that point, I hadn't even thought about um posting a follow-up video and putting visualization to that tweet. Um, but uh, as I walked in there, I started, I, I hadn't even fully walked through when I shot that video. I just walked in the library and saw all of the empty bookshelves. And I s- just wanted to document that visualization because uh, me as somebody who grew up in Douglas County Public Schools and uh, was encouraged by teachers to read books and, and my love of books, I mean, I remember when a teacher recommended The Outsiders to me, and, you know, I probably read that 20 times when I was in middle school. Yeah, I think we all did. (laughs) Okay, so you post the video. It goes viral. As I said, it's been viewed nearly 6 million times. You've uh, been written up in the Washington Post and other national outlets because after you posted it, the governor was asked about it in a news conference. He called it a fake narrative. And then you were told by Duval Schools that you were being relieved of your duties as substitute teacher for violating their social media policy. What about that? To to be honest, uh, I knew the consequences of letting the video go viral. But for me, um, this is my kid's reality, and and I can't let it go undocumented. Um, I've got a background in finance and specifically software development. So I know how a capital, capital project works. So... I realized that Duval County Public Schools didn't even have a core software to database these books or anything like that. So my goal was just to work with the numbers and find out what the reality is just to see when when it's possible for my kids to have the same books that they had even a week before at this point. Um, so as I got, as things came through, I found out that 
Um, there's 1.6 million books in the mm -hmm. uh, 197 public schools in the system. Um, and so the way it works is middle school and high school do not have uh, dedicated media specialists or certified media specialists. Uh, only elementary schools in Duval County have certified media specialists, and even they have to work two to three schools uh, and are spread out uh, among themselves. So I ended up finding out that there was only 52 certified media specialists at the time that they removed all of these books. So it doesn't take, you could do back of the napkin nap on 1.6 million books and how long it would take for 52 people to, to, to do it. So I put together a whole, even at 10 minutes per review, uh, and that includes Itsy Bitsy Spider and The Count of Monte Cristo all go, being reviewed within 10 minutes. So I realized that this was a capital project that was implemented, but instead of having the resources or the money funding uh, available to, to, to do this on a statewide level, uh, it was taking... Um, the elementary uh, media guidance resource from uh, the curriculum. So what that means is that's when the librarian who will go to classroom, go to go into the classroom with a cart of books, and they will teach reading comprehension to elementary school students. Uh, me as a substitute, I actually witnessed this, and it was so interesting to me. I actually walked over there and picked up the Elon Musk bi <laughs> bibliography about. Uh, mm. uh, our biography about Elon Musk for our kids just because I wanted to see what the curriculum looked like and I was curious. Yeah. So this is what was removed from it from the classrooms in order to comply uh, with these state comply, laws uh, yeah. around restricting material that the state says is yeah. inappropriate. Now, let me ask you, the Duval schools posted their own video showing other shelves in that same library that had books. But you say that's misleading? Uh, yeah, so... I mean, I took other videos because I wanted to document what books were on the shelves. I wouldn't, when I post, uh, you don't get to pick what goes viral. So when I posted that, uh, the empty bookshelves, it was, it, it, that was what surprised me when I walked into the library. Um, I wasn't trying to hide that there was books. I was trying to stay within the attention span of people on Twitter. <laughs> right. So, so, so there are, there are books on the shelves at Mandarin Middle, but they're still largely so inaccessible those, to so, students. Is that right? Yeah. So even if you do the math, the math um, 6,000 books out of uh, 1.6 million titles that they've admitted to having, that I don't believe that that counts the classroom titles. I wouldn't know how many they would know that was. But um, yeah, so that means that 99.625% of books are inaccessible to students right now in Duval County schools. Let's go to your calls now for fired substitute teacher Brian Covey. He was let go from his job at Mandarin Middle after he posted a viral video. It's actually been viewed more than 13 million times, I'm being told. A viral video of empty library shelves at his school. 5492937, Mary on the South Side. Good morning, Mary. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I was dumbfounded that, you know, this individual was terminated. But I have to say that there's been so many pictures that have gone viral of classrooms. Um, I don't know if they're libraries or classrooms, but most of them look like classrooms where there's brown craft paper covering the books or they're empty. And there was one where there was sort of like a yellow crime scene type, um, mm -hmm. you know, tape on it, you know, so people wouldn't, you know, pull the books out or read the books or whatever. Um, there's so it's all over Florida. It's everywhere. It's just that this one happened to be the one that was um, chosen and um, or shared, you know, but there's so much. And if I were a teacher or a media specialist and I had the threat of possibly being arrested and charged with a felony, if there are any books were on the shelves, I would probably consider removing them as well because if somebody comes to look at my room and find something, and like as the gentleman was saying, you can't have possibly teach or do your job and still read every book from cover to cover to make sure that it doesn't have something that someone somewhere thinks shouldn't be available. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to say, really. All and right. thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Mary. Okay, so you're a substitute teacher, or you were. Is that why you felt more comfortable posting this video than um, perhaps some other educators who we hear from privately 
but they've been reluctant to speak out against this policy publicly. Uh, absolutely. So everybody's trying to um, focus on the fact that they include the felony for pornography in this. Uh, but the real threat to teachers is actually losing their teaching certificate where they would be left with their education debt. Uh, they'll lose their career and they lose their pension. So for me, as somebody that was uh, exploring the opportunity to be a full-time teacher, uh, I was in a dedicated classroom, so I, w I was a full-time substitute for in the same class. So for me, I think that, uh, yeah. It's <laughs> it, for you, it was uh, an easier decision to post the video. Yeah, it, it was an easy decision to stick up for the teachers that I had talked to. So my kids, uh, especially at their school, in their elementary school, they learned reading from their teachers. Uh, my son read the Harry Potter series because um, because one of his teachers said she'd read it with him. So their their love for reading comes from their teachers and hearing from them that they're having to cry support and they're crying with each other uh, because they can't speak out uh, is one of the reasons why I decided just to stick with the video and put my uh, self on the line for something that I believe in. Lots of tweets. Here's one. It's hard to imagine you can be fired simply for exposing the ramifications of elected officials and employers making poor decisions. Does this teacher have any legal protections or recourse? Honestly, at this point, my main goal is to um, get the get the media, the specialists back into the elementary schools where they can teach reading comprehension, because you have to remember, um, this is one of the few teachers that are constant from kindergarten all the way up through fifth grade in students life. They mm -hmm. they see students grow up and they actually have a relationship with their students and they care about uh the all students' education in the school. They probably have the greatest visibility and access to elementary school students uh, in, a, in a subject that's absolutely critical for them. Um, so that and just getting the books back on the shelves and available to students, even if it just, as my son's first suggestion was, why couldn't they just do permission slips? It's 5492937. Here's an email from a listener. I'm a recent transplant to Jacksonville from Atlanta and a child in local schools, and I'm disappointed in the way Florida is legislating against free speech. America was built and succeeded on a diversity of ideas. That may sometimes be uncomfortable, but it makes us stronger. On Facebook, Tom says, the lesson we learned from the Amy D'Onofrio example, that was a teacher that was pushed out for supporting, I believe, Black Lives Matter. Uh, he, he goes on to say, the lesson we learned from that is that Duval schools will dismiss any exceptional teacher that makes a stand for their students, even if it becomes controversial. This lack of strong leadership begs the question, is it time to dismiss the superintendent? Censorship of people or books has no place in education. What are your thoughts about the leadership in Duval County Public Schools and the way they're, and let's be clear, they are implementing a policy that was enacted by the governor and the legislature? To be honest, um, I'm going to reflect the, I, the thoughts that I've gotten from a lot of teachers is, a lot of teachers have a lot of respect for how Dr. Green handled COVID and continued the education of students to the best integrity that she could. Um, so they've lost a lot. They can't figure out how that's the same Dr. Green that is allowing uh, basically 99.625% of books after 16 days or three weeks of school days um, back in the class, be banned from the schools. And, and, my son joked with me yesterday that the only book he has available in his classroom is that he can read is the dictionary. So, so the, in your son's class, is he at Mandarin Middle? No, as well, he's in elementary school. Elementary, no books in his class still. Uh, so there's a, there's an approved book list. There's that six thousand books. So if you could imagine, you know, uh, one in three hundred books uh, have an opportunity of being on that list at this point. So very few books. So very few books. I think that once the fir once the first list came out, uh, the teacher's classroom library only had three of the titles. So, um, yeah, his lack of options. Are, and what really blew my mind is when they first released the list, uh, my second grader said that she wasn't even allowed to get access to the books. They could only watch YouTube videos of the books in the classroom. <laughs> What's your response to those who pushed for these changes, saying that they were concerned that some students at young grades were potentially being exposed to inappropriate material 
or material they just didn't agree with. To be honest, the communication and the way Duval County has implemented technologies like Class Dojo and stuff like that, um, it's, it's the easiest for a teacher to send text back and forth with a teacher these days. So based on our interactions with teachers, there's ne I've ne I haven't come across a single teacher, e even with substituting, that I wouldn't trust um, with with what they what was available, I asked my son. I couldn't explain to him um, the whole law, but like my reference was, what if you came across a book um, that had the F word in it a lot? And his response is, I would just give it to the teacher or the librarian, and they'd put it away where nobody can get it. And so, the idea that if this type of material were in the libraries, um, it was just being checked out and passively, like. Uh, especially at the elementary school level where most of the impact is happening with review with removing uh, specialists. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't see it. You know, I, I always thought when I was substitute teaching, I was always look at my kids and I'd say, these are somebody else's kids, both when I did te when I was teaching and disciplining. So I thought, what would I want somebody to teach, treat my kids when they were trying to teach them? And, when it came to discipline, I said, it's not my discipline, one's mm. discipline, so. No, to that end, Susan tweets the show, the school board should pass this resolution. Let the teacher decide what books they want in their classroom. Make it clear the district will pay for defense lawyers if the governor-appointed Board of Education tries to take their teaching certificates away. In order for a student to check out books, parents should opt in. There was an opt-in, I believe, for uh, some of these materials, but... Uh, this is a resolution that's going around on social media, not likely to be adopted, of course, but thank you for tweeting that to us. Uh, TJ in Ormond Beach. Go ahead, TJ. Okay, how you doing? All right. Um, this is preposterous and ridiculous. This is thing about, oh, is this America or this is Afghanistan? I don't understand it. Like, I don't, I'm just baffled, like, going to fire, fire, fire teachers that are core of these country without teaching well a way do we i mean uh, like where do we go from there teachers teachers uh the teachers they the teachers don't get the, the the respect that they need and just to be treated the way they're being treated right now it's unfair and it's not good and these politicians that we elected they're not really standing for the people they're just doing what they think and to control or something but it doesn't make no sense to me at all thanks tj so, Brian, you're no longer teaching. What's next for you? Um, so I'm just going to keep, um, I'm going to find a new job first. Uh, I, like I said, I have a background in finance, and I, and I have uh, plenty of skills. Uh, I run my own company and, and things like that. So um, the substitute teaching was a way for me to get involved in the community and really interact and and I'd never worked in the social services before so I, I I wanted to actually develop those skills and um I felt like I was having an impact on my kids and um yeah so for me I'm just going to kind of keep pushing this this the true story that's going out because right now they're trying to bury it by just having an approved book list um, but when the approved book list is coming along so slowly, it's very difficult for me not to keep going until reading comprehension resources back in the classroom and they figure out a way how they're going to fund, fund. Um, somebody right. reviewing all these Media books. specialists. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Brian Covey, Jags fan Brian on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. In a moment, City Council candidate Jennifer Casey on her campaign for District 2. That's next. After her mother's suicide, Laura Trujillo faced a reckoning. Trujillo is Managing Editor for Life and Entertainment at USA Today, and she joins us to discuss the shock she faced when her mother took her own life, the dark secrets she had to plumb to move forward, and where she ultimately found peace. Her memoir is Stepping Back from the Ledge. That's next time on Think. Tonight at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. 
I'm Marco Werman. One year ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation. Then he invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's president said he wasn't going anywhere. Twelve months later, Ukrainians remain as determined as ever to expel Russia. Our team on the ground in Kyiv brings you the latest on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I'm Robin Young. On what would have been Nina Simone's birthday, the hosts of the podcast Essential Tremors explain how this icon, a classically trained musician and civil rights activist, is still inspiring so many 20 years after her passing. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. Our series on artificial intelligence continues with a deeper look at AI's impact on the classroom. Students have been quick to learn how artificial intelligence is changing how they study and do their homework. This latest tech is being used both to teach and by some to cheat. Can educators and parents keep up? That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, finally, this hour, we're continuing our series on profiling candidates for local office as we welcome a candidate for Jacksonville City Council District 2. Jennifer Casey has served as chair of the Duval Soil and Water Conservation District Board for two years, and she's now running to replace Al Ferraro in District 2 on the council. That includes parts of Arlington and the north side. Ferraro is termed out. Jennifer Casey, candidate for District 2, good morning. Good morning. So great to be here with you, Melissa. Good to be with you. Uh, you've recently received the endorsement of former Mayor John Delaney, uh, currently president of Flagler College, and you are uh, on the Duval Soil and Water Conservation District Board, serving as chair for two years. So what motivated you to run for higher office? I'm running for the council because um, this city has been really good to my family. I'm third generation Jacksonville. Uh, my grandparents um, were raised in South Georgia. They were sharecroppers. And my granddad, uh, he couldn't read or write. He had 22 brothers and sisters. They just lived in total poverty. And so he came to Jacksonville as a teenager, 15 years old, got a job at Florida Steel. My dad followed him into working there, and they paid for him to go to college. He was the first in our family to get a college education. I was the first to get an advanced degree. And so we're just really grateful to this city mm -hmm. um, that they were able to help us achieve economic mobility as a family. And I want that for families in Jacksonville. What are your biggest priorities for the district and the city if you're elected? I think my priorities are what they've always been. I'm a special education teacher. It's really given me the opportunity to see the needs in our families. And I think that most of the families that I've spoken with in my district, we've knocked over 5,000 doors. And what they're telling me is that they're concerned that, you know, the, the communities that they live in, they used to feel safe in their communities. Um, their sidewalks now are overgrown and cracked and inaccessible. Their roads, you know, they can't drive a ways without hitting potholes. And so I just want to do the things that will help improve the quality of life for our families. What would you do on the council to improve really crumbling infrastructure in your district and a lot of other parts of town? That's a big issue that a lot of the candidates are talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard a lot of wonderful ideas on the campaign trail. So I think that there are a lot of our candidates um, want to work on this issue, which is great. And so um, I think that my approach would be to listen to the people and not just to listen, but to have conversations um, with the citizens. One thing that I've observed even just last week at the council meeting is the council members go through the line and then they say, oh, well, I, I've got 15 emails on this issue and I spoke to two lobbyists. Well, they've received emails. That's one way conversation. And then they spoke with the lobbyists and the special interest. And so for me, I want to be someone that speaks with and has those conversations with the citizens about their needs. Do you think the city council is not being receptive enough to the concerns of their constituents? Because that is a criticism that we've heard. I think that uh, many of our council members are very well-intentioned. They are dedicated to their districts and want to see uh, see the lives of their families and their district improved. But they uh, often have their own businesses to run or their nonprofits to run, and they're not solely focused on their districts. I'm the only candidate in my race that's committed to serving full time as a council member. You know, that's the one thing that I'm going to do and put the people in my district first. 
you'd, you'd stop working as a special education teacher. That's correct. If you were I, I elected. Love, yes, I love teaching. And so for me, this would be an opportunity to step away from teaching just for a bit to serve my community in a new way. Now, Al Ferraro is running for mayor. He is termed out of this District 2 seat. He recently voted against uh, residential development near an environmentally sensitive area, the Pumpkin Hill Preserve. Uh, that did pass, though, controversially, upsetting a lot of people in District 2. How would you have voted on that? I actually went to the council meeting and stood with the residents in that area in Cedar Point Road and Pumpkin Hill. I, um, I, I think it's a shame that we have... Uh, you know, we worked so hard under Delaney's administration to preserve over 100 square miles of our beautiful city and natural resources and to prevent the very thing that is trying to be done now. And so uh, I would stand with those residents. Some We do need to fix the situation with our housing and, and affordability, mm. but I'm not sure that the way we're approaching it is right. I think from a planning perspective, we need to really increase our housing near public transportation. Mm. Oceanway doesn't have any public transportation. So to me, we need to do a better job from planning position to, to really identify, you know, all of our communities are different, right? So I, I, as a teacher, I'm used to working with students on an individual level to see strengths and weaknesses and help them reach their potential. And I would do the same for our neighborhood. Okay. And any other big priorities that you would bring to this role? So I see, uh, as I look at the city and some of the decisions that are being made, that we're not looking at our city as a whole. Um, I was really excited to see that there was an investment in parks, that we had 20 new pickleball courts installed, right? America's fastest growing sport. But then I was grieved to see that all 20 of them were south of the river. Not a single new pickleball court was installed north of the river, none in my district. And so I definitely think that uh, my approach would be to make sure that there's an equitable share of resources around the city that we are not leaving out. I mean, I'm a mom, right? I'm a mom. If I invited a bunch of kids over for a play date, right? And then I took a third of the kids and I set them aside and said, well, you're not going to have cake and ice cream and everybody else is. That's just not right. It's not fair. It's not fair for our citizens. And so although I would be elected in District 2, I would be serving all of our citizens. Jacksonville belongs to all of us. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. She's Jennifer Casey, Republican running for City Council District 2. And more about the candidates and the races at jackstoday.org. You can check that out, study up, and go and vote in March. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our team, David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella Da Silva, Michelle Corum, and Bridget O'Brien. Drop us a line at First Coast Connect at wjct.org. I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for the company, and make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.